0: the romantic poets they were the original punks i mean you look at like byron and coleridge and all of them they were doing drugs and party that's not the perception
1: now you know what i mean the perception from like an 11th grader that has to read them isn't that's probably true. That's the true.
0: Good You're yeah. like, this stuff is old. I know.
1: There's yeah, no the way they
0: partied.
1: Right. So yeah, at the time they were, you know, filled that cultural role, probably. Chris, you said you had maybe like a favorite that just to mention and throw out there. that's
2: I don't know all-time favorite, but um, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna read it, but I'll I'll do a quick synopsis. And kind of mention why it's on my mind recently a yeah. uh, Walt Whitman, who I kind of didn't like through my you know when I was thinking that writers were punk rock and I was super into Chuck Palahniuk, and I um, you know I had my and this is not my term this is George Saunders' term when I had my Hemingway boner uh, and was obsessed <laughs> with Hemingway and the idea that you know like these are the bad boys of literature and beat poets and so forth. Uh, so yeah, Whitman, you see, very distant and you know, didn't quite have anything you know much to say about him. But just in the last five years, I kind of came back around. I had to teach an American literature course that involved leaves of grass. All right, so if I have to teach it, I'll reread it. And it kind of hit me totally with a different angle. And the actual poem is called A Noiseless Patient Spider. And the entire conceit of the poem is uh, this sweetly innocent look at a little spider who's shooting off webs into the darkness of the cosmos, and maybe one web will land on something. Cast forth filament, filament, filament is the key line, hoping that the ductile hold will take and that it'll land on something. And it's it's a kind of a, uh, going back to some of the uh, the Byronic poets, you could say, well, it's about the soul, it's about searching, it's about reaching out for connection, and, it, but it seems so humble and so unpretentious at the same time. And that's the sweet spot for me where um, I would describe that as a poem that's more innocent and more good natured and more optimistic about the soul and the universe and human connection than I am as a person. So to to kind of rediscover a poem like that. And I got a little bit out of that, I have to say for monuments because the way uh, he plucked the you know, sponged dinosaurs out of my childhood, and just kind of woke me up, oh, shit, I forgot all about that. So something that has that innocence, optimism, kind of the big picture stuff you want from poetry, connecting with the soul, connecting with the universe, but in a way where it's not hitting you over the head with it. And this sweet, gentle, tiny little poem that's you know, 15 lines long um, seems to do that for me. So I kind of hold that up as a, ah, yes, as cynical as I get, there still is a mechanism by which you can really hit some of that big stuff, some of the big picture philosophical abstractions about the human condition, but in an, an unpretentious way. Uh, so that's that's been on my mind recently.
0: Well, Whitman was one of the first poets that I fell in love with. So um, I had the opposite reaction than you. You know, I in high school, I read um, you know, a lot of stale poets. I didn't get any access to the romantics until I was in college, and I loved them um talking about the romantics earlier while we were on break about them being the original punks right and that was how the english teacher sold it to me so there was a bias there i was like these are punks these are punks and i'm a punk and this is going to be cool but whitman i mean for years when i was a teenager i used to write quotes from leaves of grass inside my journals right like have you studied the earth much have you practiced so long to learn to read stop this day and night with me and you shall know the meaning of all poems um you shall possess the good of the earth and sun there are millions of suns left and it's just like this transcendent quality to his work where he was like, we are bigger than just these insignificant human beings. We are part of something large, right? Every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. We're all made of star stuff as like Carl Sagan would say. And I really, it was the first time that I read something and I felt moved. I read it and I thought, okay, like, I don't, I don't feel so alone in this universe. I feel like there's meaning and, Um, you know, I also feel like Whitman just, he knew how to put his finger on how to say that in a way that was beautiful. And yes, some of his poems are certainly like, you know, I've seen, I had a copy of Leaves of Grass where he's looking like some, uh, some sort of grizzled Santa Claus figure, um, very overgrown with the long beard and stuff. And I picture him just sort of wandering the streets of a city, just like I, you know, like reciting song of myself to himself and just like, saying all this really strange stuff um there's these long rambling lines and it takes a minute it's an investment to get into leaves of grass um it's not it's not casual reading like i would say it could be beach reading if you're a poet but it's it's a lot to take in but yeah i mean i i it's funny i haven't read leaves of grass in maybe a decade and now you know this is the month of the sealy challenge i know a lot of my poet friends are reading a poetry book a day right now um, I don't think I could read all of Leaves of Grass in one day, but I certainly want to revisit it. And I I have an old copy on my shelf. So yeah, thank you for bringing him up. I, I really love Whitman. He's uh, he's really something else. Yeah. Right.
2: Are you aware of a, a YouTube series? Uh, this is kind of a, a videographer, documentarian. And his project is he's traveling through the south and he just you know goes into these very rural communities. And invites people to read different passages from "Song of Myself" or uh, from "Leaves of Brass. And is that familiar to you?
0: I have not no. heard of this, and I would love to see a link to this because
2: it's, it's pretty. I want to know the uh, reactions. It's low budget. It is, you know, fly by the seat of your pants in terms of videographer production. But even if you only watch one or two, the very first one uh, is like a ninety-two-year-old sweet beautiful southern woman who really just wants a highball but all right i'll I'll read the (laughs) beginning of this poem and and she reads it and if you want to weep yourself to sleep that night if you just want to cut onions and cry yourself to sleep watch her reading the beginning of that first passage and it's great i don't know if they ever finished the project i don't know if they got all the way through it they started like six years ago and it's you know different people reading different passages as they travel through the south and a lot of times the people um, you know, I'm not familiar with poetry. They're coming to it completely cold, but you can kind of see them feeling it as they're reading it. It's, it's very sweet.
0: I would really love to do a project like that, but maybe with like a poet that it's just totally inappropriate to bring into a setting like that. Like instead of something like this is such transcendent poetry and this will change you and you're going to weep. I'll be like, all right, I'm going to walk through the American South and we're all going to read Sylvia Plath. <laughs> And just see how that goes over. Because I mean, I did really like, and, and Sylvia Plath is amazing, right? But um, also a lot of those poetries were written when she was mired in depression. They're very woman-centric, they're um, very pained. Um, some of them are, you know, Lady Lazarus, she becomes a phoenix, like she dies and she rises out of the ashes. She dies and dies over again. Um, and so of course I'm the only one that would think that was funny too. So I would film myself doing something really weird. I used really to
2: teach um, daddy. Uh... In, uh, a sun, in a sundown town in the south right this is beaumont texas at a little university and you know, right on the edge of texas louisiana where the kkk had a sign up like 10 miles away woo-hoo! and that's that that poem resonated like people of all uh, different varieties would like kind of wake up when you read mm. uh, some of your class daddy out loud like oh shit
0: i mean <laughs> so that voice to right? Be What's and that? that's such a like, I mean, that's such a brave poem. Ariel is such a brave collection of poems. And, you know, I, I've I've heard people argue that maybe she wouldn't have written it if she hadn't known she was going to die. Um, but I I don't I don't know about that because I think she it was it was it's too bad that she didn't continue living because that was the collection where she found her stride and she said everything she wanted to say. You know, previous collections, she was really restrained and um filtered a lot more through through craft and was like, you know, look at look at this beautiful meter in this poem and look at this um you know, these lovely poems about like, you know, looking into water and I am silver and exact. I have no preconceptions, but then you go into Ariel and she's just saying shit like daddy, daddy, you bastard. I'm through. I want to die. Like I have done it again one year in every 10 I manage it. Like I'm a sort of walking miracle because I keep trying to commit suicide. I mean, these are really deep cutting poems. And, you know, I, I, I think especially like it's not that it wouldn't appeal to men, but I think it especially appeals to young women, right, because there's so much pain in it. And there's so much about um, there's there's a poem in that collection where it, it's it's like they're selling the parts of a woman. And I'm trying to think of the name of it right now. Um, but and, I'm, and it's failing me, of course, but it's somebody saying, first, first, have you this? Do you have a woman who can do this? No. No, well, I have the perfect so woman for you. Off. And yeah, sort of auctioning off the parts of her and just talking about what she's good at and she can cook and she can do these things, right? And um, and it feels so painful and so cheap to read and yet women are objectified all the time. And women are looked at as, especially in Sylvia sylviaplasting, like, you know, this is a woman who would make a good wife. And that was how you were supposed to be. You're supposed to be a good wife and a good mother. And if you reject those notions and you're bad, and so I think, you know, maybe that would be a really interesting collection of poems to read through the American South. I mean, she is, uh, she has lived on and she's well-remembered now and she's canon if you study poetry in college. Um, so I don't know. I mean, maybe. He's really
2: take to her. They, because they, and well, I'm on, and I've, I've done that in Florida and Texas and in New York and in particular, the poem, Daddy, like. People who think they don't like poetry somehow lack, Sean. There's a stake in your fat black heart. There's oh. Something about it just is just evocative enough.
0: It's. I mean, it's. I mean, that's that's one of my favorite poems of all time. It's just. I mean, and the emotional tone there is just right, and that's really hard to nail, right? When you're when you're using pain, I mean, something that um, something that I've I've heard about my own poetry and that I've said about other poetry is the emotional tone is too high here, right? We need to filter this through craft. We need to rein that in a little bit and yet still communicate like that basic human truth. And I think, Aaron, the questions that you sent over that we got in Instagram, um, the second one was about our values. How do we, um, what was the question about values? Because I feel like this is going to, I'm going to be able to make yeah, that point. With the this.
1: question that came through was, what are your values and how do they show up in your work?
0: I would, and I would say I identify with Plath, right? Like I, I tend to write in the confessional vein myself. And so part of my big challenge is reining in my emotions too. So that I'm presenting you something that's a piece of art that you can relate to, but that isn't like punching you in the gut all the time. You know, you have to make sure you disperse those. And I think it's, I think it was Natalie Goldberg who said, you should go for the jugular. And that's my big value in writing is you should go for essential truths and you should tell your truth. And Yes, you should. You should show restraint and use craft, but you should speak your truth as honestly as you can because that's how you're going to connect with your reader. And I think Plath is a really great example of doing that, right? She says, "Daddy, you've got a stake in your fat black heart." Not through, you bastard. These are bold statements and these are painful subjects, but the reason that Ariel is a collection that lives on and is taught in college courses is because she was honest. I mean, I, I, I think she was, she was very honest about her pain. And so that's a big part of um, my value in writing, too. And I think hers, right, is that you go for the jugular and you tell the truth. And that's how you connect. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean you always have to tell the bad truth, right? We're not always like, a, we're not always, you know, doing just like a live vivisection and just causing great pain and writing poems about pain. It's not just, it's, it's about truth. It's about being honest and everybody's honesty and everybody's truth is a little different. And that's where your unique voice comes in. And that's how you discover your voice. I think. You convinced me. I always like to add, I think on at the end. (laughs) So if anybody like disagrees with me, I'm like, I, you know, I just said, I thought that I would, I think, you know, it's not, it's not 100% like I'm right and everybody else is wrong, but that's how I approach it. I thought that was a really good question. too.
2: Well, this is uh, not directly related to values, but I can force it if need be. But somebody <laughs> act, somebody got me. It's like the collected diaries of Sylvia Plath. And I can just open up to any page. And my immediate reaction is, holy shit, she's this good writing in her diary. <laughs> and I open up my Isn't own hers? diary, oh god, oh my god. <laughs> so I mean, she was so good that she was able to just kind of freeform, apparently. And still have this incisive, um, you know, really clever way of pulling things together and these emotional truths. And it seems, you know, it reads casually. It doesn't read like somebody trying to be profound. And that's that's so difficult to make that work and to make that be good. That's another reason I like Anthony Bourdain, because a lot of it seems mm, yes. conversational, it seems casual, and yet he's hitting at these really incisive, important philosophical points. Um, so jealousy, that's not the value necessarily, but one of the things that I notice about authors that I like is I have to go through this cycle of frustration at how much better they are than me, and then say, oh, but I appreciate how good they are. And all right, uh, keep working, <laughs> keep, keep pushing in that direction or uh, move your own direction and kind of see where it goes from there. Uh, it, it, what are people's feelings about um, East of Eden, the, novel either of you have an opinion on that as a novel oh
0: god i mean my when i was in high school it was it was one of my favorite books um and that was before i'd really studied anything about the bible about cain and abel um but really i haven't reread it in a very long time but one of the things that struck me was that i mean you had one character that was definitely she was supposed to embody like some type of evil, right? Um, and temptation. And there was also that conflicted sibling relationship too, and the fact that it followed this family through generations. But I don't know. I mean, I'd I'd want to hear more about you, what you want to say about East of Eden, because really I think a big part of what I loved about it was um the scope of the book, too. Um it's it's obviously, I think, I think a lot of people would consider that Steinbeck's masterpiece, right? Maybe that or Grapes of Wrath. Um, I would say the book that I revisit the most by Steinbeck is Cannery Row. And that's because I like some of his more lighthearted work, Cannery Row, Tortilla Flat. I like the homeless dudes that he likes to write about that are just sitting around doing weird homeless dude stuff and just having a happy time and still finding joy. Um, That I enjoyed. And and the way that he writes about the Salinas Valley and, um, you know, the difficulties of farmsteading and, I think he he covered that a little bit better in Grapes of Wrath, but I really, really liked the complexity of the sibling relationship in East of Eden. Mm-hmm.
2: Aaron, Aaron, you can back me up on this. Do you, you remember what I've always claimed is my favorite novel of all time?
1: Oh, I got it. Yeah, you, you're on record, actually. I think it was part of our recording, Henry Road. Thanks.
2: Yeah, because yeah, that was one good. of my what
1: questions. Oh! To... Yeah, one of my questions was, what was it? What was, uh a book or piece of art or whatever um, that, you, that you return to through time. And then that was, your, that was your selection for that question.
2: What was my answer though?
1: Yeah, that was uh, Cannery
2: Row. Excellent, yeah. I yeah. just wanted to make the point that Cannery Row is my favorite novel of all yeah. time, not East of Eden, which I'm more connected because of the movie. The reason I thought of it though, is if I had to make a statement or a claim about my values, I have this weird relationship where I think I have concepts or philosophies that I believe in. These would be things that have to do with um, the really slippery abstracts like honor or truth or um, honesty. But those are, I say that, but it's not really true. I think a value, particularly as a writer, is the stuff that really gets me, It it hits the jugular is stuff I can I can relate to immediately and kind of apply in my own life almost in an instructional way, um, which gets you right onto the egg for me of religion, because uh, I'm, I'm basically a reluctant atheist. I, I, I wish I wasn't an atheist. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Catholic with all the guilt, but no mechanism to get rid of all the guilt. Um, so the idea of literature being something that can immediately be instructive in your life or have something to say about your life either whether you're absorbing it through my favorite novel, Canary Row, my favorite movie, Magnolia, and my second favorite movie, East of Eden, all of which have troubled relationships with parent figures. Uh, The first presentation I did as a 16-year-old community college was on King Lear about dealing with (laughs) a father who has borderline personality disorder, and that was the essay that I presented was, King Lear probably has either bipolar or borderline personality disorder, I was talking specifically about myself and my life. And I just, I just used Shakespeare to have a little, a little hood over it, a little, a little saran wrap to explain what was going on directly in my life and in my situation. So there's those times where the overlap is so strong. Either you're writing something that's true to yourself, or you're watching a movie, or you're reading a novel, and it just hits, and it's almost creepy, it's almost spiritual, but the kismet factor and ironically that can create values and that could be good or bad you, know, you want to read the wrong thing because it might give you the wrong value but i i believe so strongly in storytelling and narrative and the fact that we're doing this in our heads all the time anyway if you hit on a really good poem or a really good novel or a really good movie or a really good piece of music it can kind of spontaneously um, instruct your own life and create a new value in real time which is awesome if it is something comforting and familiar and terrifying if it takes you in a new place and i'm kind of always riding that edge between those two (laughs) directions of comfort safety instruction ah this tells me how to live and holy shit, i have to confront the world in a completely new way which way is up i think
0: i also have to say that i love magnolia um i love paul thomas anderson i also love um there will be blood which is another yeah. complicated parent figure thing, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, and it, and it's funny. I was just talking, I was just talking to someone randomly online about Paul Thomas Anderson. They linked a Magnolia thing, and then I just went on this long rant about the use of Amy Mann for mm-hmm. the for the soundtrack mm-hmm. of Magnolia and how perfect it is. But that's funny about Cannery Row too, you know. And it's and the thing about Cannery Row is it's not so much the story really; it's like the cast of characters right like the doctor who's afraid of getting his head wet um i always think about him that's yeah that's just lovely but i feel like i've been there yeah it's just like it's um and you know if you've ever i've actually been to to monterey to where cannery row is based and like taken the tour and everything because you know huge steinbeck nerd or at least i was when i was younger i it's, did i went
2: to the museum too
0: <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah and it's and you can kind of see like the lushness of the valleys right and like this the setting where he was writing, it's, it's absolutely gorgeous. And I forget where I was going with that, but really I, 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 yeah, we have, we have some commonality there. I mean, I love Magnolia. It's a great Tom Cruise role, by the way. I mean, I know this is a literary podcast, but I just have to mention the Tom Cruise and Magnolia. But Tom Cruise is strong in that one.
2: Yeah, he's a real actor. He's very got unusual.
0: Chops. It's a very unusual role for him. Um And Every time I watch it, I'm always struck by, like, the range right in the beginning where he's, like, this really egotistical, like, mansplaining guy. And then he, like, moves into, like, by the end, he's, like, crying by his father's bedside. Um, And so the humanity of that movie is, like, really excellent. So I could see why you love it the same way that you love East of Eden and Cannery Row, right? Um, It's just, um, yeah, Steinbeck really portrayed humanity in a way that I think is realistic without glossing it over, without making it pretty. And that's what made it, what made it beautiful. There's, um, there's an Atmosphere song and album by the same name called God Loves Ugly. Um, oh, it's exactly. a Midwest rap group that I've been a fan of for a really long time. Um, and I really like, I really like that line that God loves ugly and God loves the ugly things, right? I'm also a reluctant atheist. My father was raised Catholic. So, uh, he's, he's still afraid of nuns, still has the phobia and, you know, both of my parents, by the time, by the time I was conceived, were atheists. So, you know, there's a, there's a really funny story about when we were kids, you know, my parents obviously didn't go to church, but they were like, we should give them the option to go to church if they want to. So they sat me and my brother down and they said, you know, uh, would you like to go to church? Your father and I do not go to church, but if you want to go to church, we will take you. And we said, what's church? And they said, oh, it's this thing where you dress up in your, in your best clothes and you go hang out really early in the morning and you listen to, a, a, like, a preacher talk. And, of course, we were like, get up early in the morning and put on stiff clothes and miss cartoons. That sucks. We don't want to do that. But, of course, like, that was no. the perfect way to, like, ask that question of your five- and six-year-old children. Of course we're going to say no. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, so I'm – I also wish I believed in God. But, uh, you know, I mean, my God is – is writing is poetry. Um, I think there's still something to worship. There's still something to find your your spirituality, um, and it just doesn't have to be like a a godlike figure who uh, you know. In a lot of portraits, kind of looks like that Walt Whitman cover, Leaves of Grass. So maybe Walt Whitman is godlike. You know, look at that picture of him. What did I call him? An overgrown Santa. That's not good. Um, so <laughs> I love Whitman for the record. I think that's what the best poetry and the best writing does, right? Is it connects us to our humanity and makes us feel closer to each other. Yeah. You know, I mean, difficult parent relationships are like one of those standard story arcs that we can all follow because everybody has that. Everybody has that relationship, you know, no matter how big or small.
1: Yeah. Wow. That was such a good like explanation. And, um, response to that question there wasn't a direct response but it was i think we got yeah that there.
0: went deep whoever asked that question we got we went like way we way deep onto that um uh-huh.
1: well the value is such a like you know obviously it is such a central thing in any like creative process that has any substance because i think the thing that came to my mind was somebody else told me after they read some of my work in like a workshop setting, where they kind of like a light bulb went off for them. And they said, like, oh, your writing like is what you need to tell yourself. Because they were like questioning, like, well, where is this voice coming from? <laughs> and I'm like, well, whatever, my own, whatever my explanation was. And then they they said something that the fact ago, like, oh, you're telling yourself what you need to hear. And I'm like, yeah, I know I know that's what I'm doing, but you know, to, for it to kind of connect and like, then it like it makes a, a little more sound, whatever I had written uh, makes more sense because it's not just like in some disembodied voice that's like coming to me or that's like speaking in some kind of abstract way. It's meaningful to me in the sense of like, that's what I'm giving myself through this kind of circular process of reflecting on things and and integrating it and coming back and and whatever that happens like that's how it came up so in terms of like the how does it show up in your work I think that's that was kind of what I what I thought of first is that moment where I had heard that in in conversation and thinking about like, yeah I'm giving myself the value that I need but it has to be in a way that like convinces myself that it's not just like yeah like Everything will work out. I'm like, I'm not gonna believe that. Why, well, you know, it's not so easy. You don't get off that easy. So it has to be this kind of like convincing way to get to where I need to be, where it's it is that there's that kind of tension there where it's not it's not just an empty kind of a statement or something like that. For whatever that's worth, that's kind of where where I
2: what I thought of first. I don't know if you relate to this. I don't know if you relate to this as much as I do as a teacher, but I didn't come up with this line, but it's perfect for me and maybe for you, Aaron. Um, I, I teach the lessons that I need, or I teach the content that, you know, I the lessons that I should be learning. And so I'll take an easy one like procrastination. I'm, I can do a sermon, I can do a, a televangelistic sermon on procrastination and I'm good at teaching it because I'm you know, terrible with procrastinating, And that can get you into other things like parent issues or addictive personality, uh, depression, anxiety. And I'm, I'm good at teaching the stuff that I need to hear. The reason I'm good at it's because I'm teaching the sermon. I'm giving the sermon that I need.
0: You know, and, and and to piggyback off of that question, um, whoever posed this question to us, I would say, I hope they're listening to this podcast. Um, Firstly, because we covered the question, but secondly, I would challenge whoever asked that question to ask that question of anything that they're reading um because it's a good question to ask right you read through sylvia Plath, you read through walt whitman hemingway you know if you've got your hemingway boner um steinbeck you know what are their values and how does it show up in their work and you know asking questions of of the works we read is kind of how we delve deeper and become both better readers and better writers and so i I think that's an excellent question because it it relates to the first question, right? What do you do on difficult writing days? Maybe I read and I ask questions of what I'm reading because what we take out of what we're reading, it's unique to each individual. Like what I, the way that I read Sylvia Plath is going to be a little bit different than the way that Chris reads it and a little bit different than the way that Aaron reads it. But all of it speaks to us, all of it connects. So um, why does it connect with you and what value is it offering? And how are you seeing that? And I don't know that I can answer that question for anybody, right, except for myself. But I think it's such a great question that I really, I really hope that person is is asking it of the works they're reading because uh, you know I never thought of it that way, but that's certainly part of what I do when I read works by people I really greatly admire.
1: Yeah, not. I mean, to return to a musical term like resonance, so it's like three of us can read a poem and we could all say yeah. Like, so it has a it has a resonance with us, but the things that we get from it might be different. So that's, that just all makes total sense. Yeah, I do. I like that question as a reading question too, not just a, a writing or creating question. Well, that's a lot to think about, huh?
0: It's certainly, <laughs> I mean, we went, I don't. I have listened to some of the previous Wild Roof Journal podcasts, so it's like, you know, I feel like anytime you discuss literature, you're gonna go deep. But this was a productive conversation for me. I actually feel like writing now. So maybe this is how I get through my difficult writing day today because I have yet to write today, and I meant to, and I procrastinated, Chris. Um, I was like, I'm totally gonna sit down and write before I do the Wild Roof Journal podcast. Um, so that way, I'll know that I got it done, and then I didn't. I also didn't read anything useful. I uh, doodled. So this might be my way to get through my difficult writing day and put down some words to paper.
1: Nice. Yeah, we have multiple Yeah, difficult writing day. Listen, read doodle. All these are good options. I'll say one last thing. If you hear crickets, I'm aware of them. And if it comes through the audio, I apologize. You but
2: mean there's little crickets. crickets?
1: Yeah, but there's crickets.
2: So it's the summertime. You know you meant it the awkward silences. You mean legitimate crickets. Just checking. Yeah. I mean, r- I was going to say,
0: if you hear crying in the background, I have an elderly pug, and he's not happy about being left out of this podcast. Um, he's the center right, of so, the universe.
1: You know, this is a lo-fi endeavor. So if there's background noises, it is mid- or no, it's the beginning of August right now. So it's it's like we're hanging out on the porch talking about poems. That's,
2: beautiful. that's, that's um,
1: Talking about poems. So if you're if you're annoyed by the crickets, if you made it this far, just kind of have that image in your mind. We're just hanging out. Steamy, it's hot.
2: But, on the front yeah. porch. Some yeah. of cicadas, <laughs> sipping some sweet yeah, tea. Man.
0: I want to say thank you for having me. Sorry, Chris, I didn't mean to interrupt you. <laughs>
2: well, now, I was just going to say, uh, my only physics question is, how is it that every pug is the center of the universe, because they all are, my dad has one also, and he is also the center of the universe, interesting. Oh man, center yeah, every time. single pug the is we'll the,
0: the center, they are the star of their own Hollywood story, and Indeed. it is always a tragedy if they are left out of anything. I mean, he is a Shakespearean tragedy outside my door right now, where he's like, oh, you only gave me one shoe stick, this is so terrible. I wanted to sit and eat it in your lap in front of the microphone so everyone could hear me. And he is indeed adorable. Um, I I also want to say thank you for having me guys. Um, This has been a really great experience for me and for letting me bring poems that I love. It's the perfect month to do that since this is the month of the Sealy challenge. So I know a lot of people are looking for books to read. So I'll plug again. Count four by Keith Kopka. You can Google him. It's K-O-P-K-A. He's very easy to find. He's punch a poet on Instagram. So very easy to find in that way too, because that's a unique thing. And also I brought a poem about him being punched or at least his narrator being punched. So uh perfect Instagram handle, right? Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: That was his generative moment. Yeah. He became a poet. Yeah, uh, exactly.
0: <laughs> on impact, yeah, He took shape.
1: So yeah, absolutely. Thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us. I feel like we accomplished something that was fun. We'll talk to everybody again soon.
2: Sounds good. Cheers.